Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the Old Dogs ramble about waiting in line. We'll tell you about the long lines of climbers waiting to summit Mount Everest. We'll get around to talking about procrastination. We'll report on the sad surprise a mom got when she discovered her daughter's cake was a fake. We'll inspire you with the story of an octogenarian pole vaulter, and we'll take a look at how one yoga teacher became a sword swallower. Hope you've already had lunch. All right, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, you know our first pod nugget got me thinking about waiting in line. That's probably something I have very little patience for, and... You know, for example, in a grocery store, I hate waiting in line for four or five people with very full grocery carts to unload their stuff. They always have problems with their credit cards. Um, And, of course, before that, you waste time trying to figure out which line is the shortest. That's, That's really wasted time for me. Okay. What would you rather be doing during that time? I'd rather be sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. What else is a gripe about waiting in line? Oh, I thought you might have something that bugged you. Oh, um, I might. Yeah. I mean, obviously, waiting in the doctor's office when you've got an appointment for 9 o'clock and nothing happens. You know, I have to break traffic rules to get there on time, usually. You mean you go less than 50 miles an hour, you break that rule, or, or what? <laughs> no. Okay. But actually, then, then waiting, once you get there, it's... Well, here's another one. Yeah. You can watch your life pass in front of your eyes when you're waiting to renew your driver's license. Oh, yeah. Something well, else you got? Uh, well, you know, I could gripe all day, but uh, there's got to be some things you wouldn't mind waiting for, Paul. Uh, can, uh, well, let's, let's look back. Over our lives, yeah, there were some things. Yeah. Uh, uh, for example, uh, viewing the Sistine Chapel. I lined up for a long period of time to get in to see the Sistine Chapel in Rome. That was that was worth waiting for. Oh, it's in Rome? Used to be. Oh, I was in Utica when I saw it. Ah, you, no you wonder saw, the line was so short. You saw the, the copy, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I used to not mind waiting in line for the good humor man. You remember the good humor man? Oh, yeah. He'd come around to all the neighborhoods, and he had those bells that would jingle. And uh, I would wait in line because the anticipation was part of the fun. Sure. And you start lining up when you hear the sound oh, yeah. before you see him. And sure. it was unmistakable. I'll tell you another line I don't uh-huh. mind getting into is if it's the only restroom in the building. <laughs> <laughs> I don't don't mind that wait at all. Yeah. Um, do you remember Star Wars back in the 70s? How long a line was it? It was long. You, and you were willing to wait for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you can think of? I, I know one thing I would line up for is is a Beatles reunion. Any chance of that happening? Uh, not currently, uh, unless you are going to a seance. I see. Well, actually, reunions gets easier and easier as the Beatles <laughs> Right, the Beatle reunion. <laughs> yeah, the Beatle reunion. Well, you know, this does lead naturally into our first pod nugget. Uh, would you line up in order to see the best view in the world? There are places that you would expect to wait in line, right? 
But at the summit of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet... Count me out. This item comes to us from the New York Times from May 25th, 2019. Now, climbing Mount Everest is a challenge for even the most skilled climber. It was difficult for me, too. <laughs> I passed. But the climb has become quite fashionable, even with inexperienced climbers. As a result, there are too many people attempting to climb to the summit. That's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Mm. One climber after reaching the top was subjected to pushing and shoving from about 20 other climbers trying to take <laughs> selfies. To get there, he had to wait in a long line on an icy ridge for hours. There are several reasons for the crowding. Nepal this year has issued a record number of permits. Many of the climbers are thrill-seekers who lack the skills for a challenge like Everest. And there are a limited number of days when the conditions for climbing are optimal. The results have been deadly. That's the dark side. Yes. Yeah. Eleven people have lost their lives this year on Everest. Many more got sick and had to be dragged back down the mountain by Sherpas. So if you were planning on a trip to Nepal for some mountain climbing, just forget it. Stay home and find a shorter mountain, or better yet, head for the hills. I'll admit it, I procrastinate. I can find very creative reasons to avoid doing something that isn't fun. The New York Times had an article about procrastination in the March 25th, 2019 issue, and I finally got around to reading it. In a 2013 study, the authors suggest that procrastination is about being more focused on the negative thoughts about a task rather than getting on with the task. We could believe the task is unpleasant, boring, or maybe beyond our capabilities. And we feel a momentary relief when we procrastinate. But this is soon replaced with increased stress and anxiety and feelings of low self-esteem. That initial reward of putting off the task is why we repeat the behavior. It is a cycle that can become a chronic habit. Well, the solution is not better productivity. The solution is to manage our negative feelings about tasks. And there are several strategies for breaking the procrastination cycle. One strategy is to break larger tasks into smaller tasks that are easier to achieve and seem less daunting. Okay. All right, my favorite is to focus on the satisfaction of completing a task that seems unpleasant. In other words, focus on a reward that is bigger and longer lasting than the momentary reward from procrastinating. Well, I don't know. I, I don't mind that temporary feeling of elation. <laughs> it's been kind of rewarding for me. So if you've been using this podcast as a distraction to avoid some task, don't stop listening. That would be adding a distraction to a distraction. Finish the podcast and then the task you've been avoiding. What task is that, Paul? <laughs> a woman in Pasadena, Texas, got less than she bargained for when she ordered a cake from a local retailer. This item is from the HuffPost, dated June 3rd, 2019. The occasion was a graduation party for her daughter. When the lady arrived at the store to pick up the cake, the store bakery had lost the order. No cake. Well, the store manager came to the rescue. He told the lady to choose any cake from the ones that were ready to go. The bakers then added a cap-and-gown photo of the daughter. I mean, it looked gorgeous. At the party... 
As she started to cut the cake, she made the unhappy discovery that the cake was only for display purposes. It was made of styrofoam. Oh, yum! Yep. The moment was shocking and very embarrassing. Despite efforts from the store to make amends, the lady felt humiliated in front of her friends and family. It would take a while for her to forgive. Well, you know, Jim, she should have remembered that old adage: "You can't have your cake and eat it too." Apparently, can I hear a groan? Hmm. Oh. We want to salute someone who is still playing the field at 85. Actually, she's playing track and field. This pod nugget is from the Houston Chronicle from March 23rd, 2019. Flo Miler has been an amateur athlete for most of her life. Among other things, she competed in water skiing and tennis. Ah,、uh, but at the age of sixty, she got involved with track and field. This year, Flo competed at the World Masters Athletic Championship in Poland. She normally trains five days a week. Well, for this meet, she trained six days a week. Her events included the long jump, 60-meter hurdles, 800-meter run, pentathlon, and pole vault. I'm tired just reading that sentence. Yeah, I'm with you. You go, Flo. That await a howl at the moon. Kiri Hokendoner was a yoga teacher in 2007 who ran across a photo online of a sword swallower. It changed her life, her name, and her career. This item comes to us from the New York Times from May thirtieth, twenty nineteen. It became an obsession for Carrie to learn to swallow a sword. I don't know why. <laughs> She paged through anatomy books, learning the path that a sword would take without causing any damage. And you know it is complicated. A sword is straight, and your digestive tract is not. You have to conquer the gag reflex that accompanies putting large objects down your throat. Well, of course you do. There are other muscles further down that naturally contract that must be trained to relax. Some swallowers are born to the art, mastering it in months. Kiri took a year of exploration before she was able to swallow a sword. She had a strong gag reflex. She says she gags brushing her teeth. Oh boy! Don't you pick another career there, Carrie?、Mm. She is now a polished performer with a new stage name, Betty Bloomers. <laughs> well, what's wrong what, with Hoken Dorner? I I don't know. What do you expect? <laughs> This isn't opera. It's a variety act. She's Betty Bloomers. Betty keeps busy doing the kind of shows that sword swallowers do, and an interesting side story. She is married to Ray Valens, who also swallows swords. Anyone who invites this couple to dinner should keep an eye on the silverware. In our last episode, we introduced you to Suzanne Savoy, a working actress based in New York. In part two of our interview, Susie talks about her survival of stage four cancer, her struggle to take control of her health and her future. And her triumph over the odds to enjoy a bonus round in her career and in her life. While you were working hard at everything else you were doing, you discovered something that you didn't think was quite right, and you wanted to do something about it.、Um, tell us a little bit about what you went through. Yeah, well, it was actually just as my career was really getting rebooted. I had just been cast、um, in House of Cards. And、uh, it was a recurring role. Well, I did my first couple of episodes. I guess a day or two after I had been diagnosed with a very rare form of rectal cancer, 
and um, the prognosis was not good. I didn't know it at the time, but I found out later that the survival rate for this particular kind of cancer beyond five years was considered to be zero. Oh. Yeah. Um, but I actually, I couldn't even get diagnosed for about a year. I went back and forth to my GI doctor and uh, to a colorectal surgeon. Kept going back and going, something's not right. Something's not right. Um, I'm having these problems. And they kept saying, well, you know, your, your colonoscopy looked fine. We saw a few little odds and ends, but you, you know, you seem fine. Um, and it's just, you know, you're an older woman, you should just get used to these things. And that just didn't wash that just, you know, any, anytime anybody tells you, oh, you're getting older, uh, whatever, you should just get used to it. I, I had a therapist back in Houston who lived to be 95 and worked until he was, I think, 93. He was a psychotherapist. And I loved the guy. His name was Shalom Weinberg. And at one point I went into him and said, oh, you know, this physical thing is happening. This was years ago. And I said, I guess it's just age. And he said, Susie, don't ever accept that. He said, always do whatever you can to fight it or to find out what's wrong. Don't accept that it's just age. And, you know, here's a guy who was significantly older than me giving me this advice. And I thought, well, you know, it seems to be working for him. And, uh, it's been great advice. Uh, you know, it seems like every time something comes up where someone says, oh, you know, you just have to accept it because you're getting older. Um, I find out that that's not true through research. So, so you took matters into your own hands and what I, happened? I did. I mean, I had to, I finally, uh, I finally got a female doctor who was sitting in for my regular, uh, GI doctor. And, um, I said, look, something's not right. I can feel this thing pressing against my spine. Why aren't you doing any imaging? Oh, well, you know, we're told that we do too much imaging. Well, I think that means that the insurance companies are mm -hmm. saying we're not going to pay for this much imaging. So it's really the insurance companies that seem to be driving uh, people's treatment in some cases. So, I, so I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, and I, I hate to ever do this, but I had to go into actress mode. And I started just screaming and crying and saying, come on, you got to do something. So she did. And there it was, a big old tumor. And um, then they snapped into action. But then I began to realize that it felt like they were seeing me as a number, not as a person. And I got a very bad sense that they weren't going to treat me as uh, you know, a patient who was going to survive. So I, I was lucky. I talked to a doctor whom I really trusted. And I said, you know, I just got this bad feeling. And he said, you know, I was actually in the meeting where they discussed your case. And you're right. They're just going to keep you in remission, treat you very lightly with chemo and until you die. So I was fortunate that I asked questions. And at that point, I um, fired some of my doctors and found doctors who would actually treat me more aggressively. And now I'm seven years out and still kicking you know it's the cancer has been gone for six years so my oncologists feel that we really did kick it and um, so i'm in what we call the bonus round 
<laughs> Congratulations, Congratulations on uh, covering your ass, I guess you'd say. Uh, oh, somebody had to say it, Paul. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm sorry. It was right there in front of me. Uh, okay, what's interesting to us is you said that this whole process where you had to pretty much take over has affected your acting life. Tell us about oh, that. It really has. Well, you know, well, for one thing, once you go through something that dramatic, um, you, I think life just becomes a little more vivid and you, I guess, take it less for granted. Um, but I, I mean, I had to go to such lengths to keep myself alive and repeatedly, and I had to fight against my own, not fight against my own family, but they tended to decide with the doctors because they wore the white coats, you know, and they had authority. So I learned to fight real hard. And, um, to the point where, at one point, they said I was going to have to have an irreversible colostomy because my cancer had reversed and was was getting, you know, was growing again. Well, it turned out they had read the charts wrong. They read old charts. They didn't have the most current charts. And they went, oh, well, what? it was, yeah. So, but at that point when they said, oh, you have to get this irreversible colostomy like next week. I elbowed my way into MD Anderson through a friend and I got myself on a plane and flew down to Houston and talked to this doctor down there. And he said, no, 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 you know, even if they thought you had to have one, we could operate and work around it. So, you know, I, I learned from the um, Livestrong website that when you get a second opinion, always go to the very best doctor you can. Don't just get any old second opinion. So I started applying that sort of thing to my acting work, um, to not accept second best or not accept being treated as second best. That was one of the things that I found on some of the TV sets. Actors themselves sometimes separate themselves into strata, you know? We're, we're above the title, so we don't talk to people who are below the title. Uh, we're regular performers so we don't talk to the recurring characters where the recurring characters we don't talk to the you know day players so it, it's not just the producers who do this sometimes it's the actors themselves who create this weird social structure on a set and um you know i will say that the house of cards for all the wonderful people who were on that so i loved michael kelly I loved Robin Wright. She was just, she's just my hero. But, you know, there was an infectious presence and it, it really did infect the whole, the whole set. And I would go home feeling like I was nothing. Uh, I was treated by this, you know, the star of the show as though I was invisible and nothing and worse than invisible. And he did that to many, many people on set um, just as a, as a power play. So, I went home thinking, I, I don't want to be an actor anymore. I just, I don't. It, you know, I thought it was going to be great. It's not great. So I chose to, again, take things into my own hands. I thought I need a project that I have control over, that I feel is putting something good out into the world and um, where I can improve as an actor, get out there and, you know, improve my chops. And that's what led you to Je Christine. So, Suzanne, now that you are able to look far, far into the future, <laughs> what does the future look like for you? Oh, boy, that's a really good question. 
I, I think that I will work as long as I live because I just love my work. And there are always new aspects to the work. You know, uh, a few years ago, I started doing improv. Paul, <laughs> uh, you all out there might not know it, but uh, Paul Menzel is the comedy king. So, yeah, that's that's added to my life. And I'm getting to do more comedy because of that. Um, I just think I'll keep working uh, as long as I can. Uh, New York is a very hard place I find for an older person to live, it's getting harder and harder. You know, just navigating the streets can be so treacherous. You know, these van drivers from New Jersey come barreling in and they want to get back, you know, before five o'clock and they'll just, they, you know, they're constantly picking off these old people who are trying to cross the street. It's, it's, it's hell out there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I may end up, I don't know. L.A. is not my favorite place to live, but my daughter's out there. So, yeah, I may end up out there somewhere. I don't know. T- tell me where I should go. Where to well, go. Uh, Jim's got a couch you can uh, <laughs> spend a couple of weeks on. <laughs> we, we can actually even do better than that. But wherever you end up, we hope that you still uh, have a lot of reason to come back to Houston. Well, let me just tell you that of all I've I've lived in Montreal, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Houston, I've lived in Saskatchewan. Um, of all the places in Delaware, I was born in Delaware. Of all the places I've lived, Houston has my heart. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey, keep on howling at the moon.